two other announcements that Jim uh, overlooked. First of all, we have planned a Christmas party for an adult Christmas party for the church, and uh, we have a sign-up list out in the foyer so that you can sign up so we can have a good count of who will uh, be in attendance. The cost will be approximately, have we settled on that? Anybody know? He just, Jim just left. It's 20 to $24 per person, and go ahead and uh, sign up out front. We've got a DJ with some uh, who'll be playing some music, and you need to see Mike Regal about that if you have any particular um, suggestions there. Also, next summer, for those of you who might be interested, um, and if any of you are, I think it would be really nice if we had you know two or three people who uh, were able to make the effort to go down here for this. Uh, on uh, Saturday and Sunday, July 20th and 21st, they're going to have an ordination of pastors at Baraka Church, and that will probably be Pastor Theme's last ordination, I would assume, since he's going to be 84 this April. So uh, we haven't had one in six years. I don't imagine he'll be doing another one at 90. Um, but one never knows. Anyhow, that will be, uh, th- at this point, there are three candidates that I know of with a possible fourth, and I think that there are, you know, if you know of anyone who is uh, going to seminary and is a possible candidate or potential candidate for ordination, you might want to pass the word along that they will be having that. It's quite a um, uh, wonderful ceremony, both on Sunday night, so you can't come back Sunday and be working Monday. You've got to stay over and come back on Monday if you go. And uh, the question-answer period, the interrogation time on Saturday morning is always interesting, and everybody who shows up learns a lot. So that's, that's a lot of fun, and we like to put the candidates on the hot seat. Yes? Yes? Yeah, the, the public doesn't quiz, but the public is invited. Yeah, we want you know the more the 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 more public that's there, the higher the pressure on the candidates. So you know the church seats twelve hundred, so you know it can uh, handle quite a few, and and that's always good for them. And it's a you know formal affair. In the sense that it's it's uh, well organized and well run, there's usually anywhere from three to eight candidates, and then down on the front, all the board of deacons sits, along with a panel of usually four to six pastors, along with uh, Pastor Theme, and he conducts 90% of the question answer, or about 80%, and then everybody else gets to uh, chime in here and there to ask other questions. Uh, it might be a little different this year. I think we're going to try to have two or three other people conduct the majority of the questioning just to give him a little bit of a break. But uh, he will nevertheless oversee the entire operation. And, you know, old war horses smell the battle, and they run into it full speed ahead, even if they're supposed to sit back and wait. So that just as well might happen. But it will be, um, you know, that's that's something to witness if you've never seen anything like that and an opportunity to go down there, because I know some of you have been impacted in your lives and ministry by his ministry and have never been down there and have always wanted to, and this would be a uh, great opportunity to, uh, to do that.
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord ready to study His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. The principle of confession of sin is a matter of the priesthood of the believer and a matter of privacy between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we always uh, make sure that we have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship. It's God the Holy Spirit who helps us to study, understand, and learn His Word and apply it. So we need to make sure we're in right relationship with Him. So we have a few moments of silent prayer. And then I will open. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together to study your word. We thank you that you have given us our great salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who was incarnate on the earth and went to the cross and died as a substitute for our sins, that he paid the penalty in full. So there's nothing left for us except to put our faith in him. Now, Father, we pray that uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we might not take the teaching of your word lightly but that we might realize that this is the instrument by which you have uh, determined that we will learn and grow and mature as believers. We thank you for the freedom we have to study your word. And we pray now that as we study it, we might be able to concentrate and understand these important truths and to see how they apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study of Ruth. However, last week at the end of our hour, we came to the doctrine of redemption. Now, the doctrine of redemption is crucial for understanding some things that are going on in in Ruth because some of the events in the book of Ruth are designed to be a, a visual aid or a picture for us to help us understand the doctrine of redemption and the importance of the hypostatic union, that Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person together. And this is evidenced by the fact that one of the key words in Ruth relates to the role of Boaz, who is Ruth's kinsman. That's the word that's often translated as, is kinsman. But it means kinsman redeemer, the goel. And the goel is a picture of Jesus Christ who is our kinsman. And because he is our kinsman in terms of the fact that he is, uh, un, uh, that he is true humanity, he is able to pay the ransom price, the redemption price for our sins. So we are taking the time to go through. Last time we went through the study of the Old Testament role of the goel, 
the kinsman redeemer, and then we begin the study of redemption. This is important to understand. The backdrop is a doctrinal backdrop for what will transpire in the next two chapters, in Ruth chapter 3 and Ruth chapter 4. So last time we began by looking at redemption terminology, point number one, redemption terminology. And in the Old Testament, there are two key words that are used for redemption. The first is the word pada, which means to ransom, deliver, rescue. It means to pay a price for the transfer of ownership. It emphasizes the idea that a price is paid. When you think of the word redeem, what you need to think about is the payment of a price. Those of you who are uh, 40 and over may remember back in the... um, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, and there was a big thing about saving stamps. You know, they had these bonus stamps and S&H green stamps and other things like that. And, and you would get those, and when you collected a certain number of books that had all of these stamps, then you would go down to the Redemption Center, where you would redeem your books for whatever you wanted, a toaster or bicycle or new oven or stove or washing machine. You could get all kinds of things, trips to Hawaii, whatever you wanted. And people did that. I saved That was before couponing came along, I guess. And the same thing would apply, I guess, to couponing. You take, cut your, clip your coupons out of the newspaper to get your 5, 10, 20 cents off of whatever the product is. And then when you go to the store, you redeem those. And that's the basic root meaning of the concept of redemption, is the payment of a price. So Padal reflects that and it has, and it emphasizes, and in many cases, emphasizes the deliverance or payment of a price for the freedom of a slave or for the purchase of a slave out of the slave market. And we're going to see that in terms of its usage. So pada has to do with the payment of a price. And the other word ga'al is the verb. The noun form of ga'al is go'el, which is the name for the kinsman redeemer. So the verb is ga'al, which means to deliver, to save, to redeem has the idea of removing an object from a dangerous situation uh, as an extension of being redeemed from indenture or slavery. So it still picks up that same idea. When you hear the word ga'al, you would think, uh, probably the first thing that would come into your mind when you heard that word was purchasing the freedom of a slavery or purchasing um, purchasing a slave from the uh, slave market of sin. It means to buy back, redeem, purchase back an item with money or goods that had been sold at a prior time. So it has that idea of deliverance, freedom, uh, sometimes simply translated to save, but specifically to redeem or to purchase um, something or someone with the idea of protection. It's a secondary and important idea. The noun uh, is goel, and this is just a cut-and-paste job I did on the overhead from one of the uh, Greek dictionaries. It means a kinsman redeemer, a redemptor, i.e., a relative near of kin, who buys an object from indenture or slavery or possession and control, or as an obligation to help a widow. Note, part of the obligation is to marry the widow, So it is a kinsman, buyer, redeemer, one who purchases an object that had been previously sold. So the main idea that we're going to see here is that that 
it got, gets into the idea of, the, of leveret marriage, and that was a provision made in the Old Testament that if a man died and had not had a child yet, then and if his widow was young enough to still have children, then his brother had the obligation. It's an option, but it's an obligation to take the, the uh, dead brother's wife as his own and to raise up, at least the firstborn would be raised as the uh, dead brother's child in order to pass on the family inheritance. So you see the emphasis on uh, the divine institution of family in the nation and preserving the family and preserving the possessions in the family and family responsibility to take care of one another, even to uh, the extended family of cousins. And that's what Boaz is to Ruth. He is a distant cousin He is of, uh, of her dead husbands. He's a distant cousin of Elimelech, who was her father-in-law. And so he has an obligation to step in and to protect the family financially, and he does that through the payment of a price to purchase land, to, uh, and, and that includes taking Ruth as his wife. So that's the background of, of chapter 3. Now, the New Testament picks up several different words, and I'm just going to run through this. I don't, it's not necessary to write down every one of these, but they, there's two root ideas. There's the verb lutrao, and there's the verb agorazo. And these are the two key words for, um, or two key roots for redemption in the New Testament, and they have the same idea. Now, there are various forms of the words formed with a preposition plus the root. So you have the noun antilutron, which is the idea of substituting money, the payment for the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. Sometimes it's translated ransomed, which means to purchase freedom from slavery, used in 1 Timothy 2.6 with the preposition pair, which is the preposition in the Greek for substitution. It means you buy something for someone as a substitute for someone. You step in and pay the penalty in their place. Then you have the word apolutrosis. Notice that middle, middle word, lutro. That's the key root here. You had uh, anti was the preposition with the previous word. With this one, it's apolutrosis, which means deliverance procured by the payment of a ransom or to release a slave upon receipt of the ransom. Then you have the um, noun lutron, which is the payment of a ransom, the price paid for letting someone loose, letting someone go, giving them freedom. So freedom is another idea in redemption. So whenever we think of our redemption in Christ, we need to think of the ideas of freedom, ideas of liberty, ideas of setting free, and ideas of a purchase price being paid for that to take place. Then you have another, uh, the verb is lutrao, which also means to pay the ransom, to liberate, to deliver by payment of ransom. Uh, The noun is lutrosis, again, it emphasizes deliverance, redemption, and freedom, and then the noun lutrotes, which means the redeemer or the deliverer. Now, all of that's the same word group, and it emphasizes deliverance, freedom, the payment of a price. And then the second word that's used in uh, passages for redemption is agorazo, from the Greek word agora, which was the marketplace. And it has to do with purchasing something in the marketplace, uh, in this case, purchasing someone in the slave market. 
and then it has an intensified verb, ex agorazo, which means to purchase, also means to purchase from the slave market to completely and totally liberate a slave from slavery. So when we look at all of these words, the main idea for redemption then is to purchase, to buy, and to liberate, to provide freedom. And a secondary idea of that would be, or a derivative idea would be protection. Now, the second point, having looked at the terminology, the second point is that the Old Testament picture of redemption is the exodus. I pointed out last time it's important for those of you who are teaching your kids at home and for those of you who are teaching younger kids in the prep school, it's important to realize that Old Testament events were designed to picture doctrines that are explained more in a more abstract way in the New Testament. And to realize the kids, especially your younger kids up to about the age of eight or nine, um, have difficulty with abstract thinking. So when you go down and you try to teach kids, and even some older kids, fourth, fifth grade, have a little more difficulty. They're just beginning to think in an abstract manner. Uh, it's important to ground the doctrine that you're teaching from New Testament passages in the, the stories, the episodes of the Old Testament. That's what they were designed for. First Chronicles 10 says that these things happened in the Old Testament as an example to us. So what, what happens then is when you're teaching kids and you use these concrete examples, for example, Ruth and Boaz as an illustration of the kinsman redeemer, how Boaz protects her, how Boaz takes care of her. Uh, Boaz uh, uh, purchases her, pays their debts, and, and, and goes above and beyond the call of duty in dealing with her in grace. That is a concrete picture that kids can understand, and adults too, of how God's grace functions and operates. So it's important to ground these principles. That's God's teaching methodology is to ground abstract principles into historical space-time events. He puts uh, flesh and blood onto these principles. They're not simply abstract doctrinal concepts. They are grounded in historical events. So the picture of redemption is grounded in the Exodus event in the Old Testament. The Exodus involved the payment of a price, the purchase of the freedom of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And the key ideas that we see there, once again, are the payment of a price. We see the concept of deliverance and freedom as well as protection. Let's look at some verses. First of all, Exodus 6, 6. Something's out of order here. Okay, first of all, let's look at Exodus 6, 6. Say therefore to the, say therefore to the sons of Israel, God is speaking, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem, and there the word is Ga'al, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So God says three things in parallelism. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you. And so there is a, an, an order there, an, an ascending order of uh, intensification. I will bring you out, I will deliver you, and I will redeem you. So it has, the parallelism there emphasizes the fact that redemption involves bringing them out and deliverance. A second verse that's important, if you have time to look it up, is Exodus 15, 13. 
Exodus chapter 15, verse 13, where Moses is speaking to God, and he is reminding God of what he has done. He says, In thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. So it is God's taking the people to Mount Sinai where he was going to deliver the law. But notice that Moses says it is in thy loving kindness. And that word for loving kindness is one that we have run into several times in Ruth and is crucial for understanding this concept of redemption. It is the Hebrew word chesed. This is a hard ch. Chesed, and it's sometimes translated love. In Ruth, it's often translated kindness, but it is more than either one of those words can convey. It has the ideas of mercy, faithfulness, loyalty, steadfastness, And a good translation almost anywhere would be steadfast, loyal love. Steadfast, loyal love. And it is a love that, it is a word that characterizes more than anything else. I think the, if you have one Greek or Hebrew word that um, defines God's integrity, it would be chesed. It brings in the idea in places of righteousness and justice as well and is related to them. So it is a, it's a broad word that encompasses many ideas and is, is rich with, uh, with meaning. So Moses says, it is in thy loving kindness. This is the ground of God's redemptive activity. John, the apostle in 1 John, says that God is love. And love, more than anything else, encapsulates all of who and what God is. So that doesn't exclude the other attributes, but they all work together in perfect harmony. And sometimes people want to juxtapose his justice with his love and say, well, how can a loving God uh, send his creatures to the lake of fire? Well, he wouldn't be loving if he didn't involve discipline. It's It's an unloving parent who does not discipline their children so that when they grow up they can act as a mature adult and exercise some control in their own life and some self-discipline. So justice and righteousness are intimately connected with divine love. So Moses says, In thy loving kindness, in thy chesed, thou hast led thy people whom thou hast redeemed. So redemption is grounded in the basic character of God in His love, that that is who God is. And God can do nothing else than to provide a redemption solution for people, for humanity. He is not going to automatically save them, but He is going to give them the option for redemption, and that is based on who He is. He can do nothing less than deal with His creatures in undeserved and unmerited favor. Another verse that emphasizes this is Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. But because the Lord loved you, notice that it once again is grounded in God's love. Here it is a different word for love. It is his love as a hav. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And here the word for redeemed is the other word, pada. In the other two verses, it was ga'al. Here it's pada. He redeemed you. He purchased you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So both words, ga'al and pada, are used to relate to the Exodus event. Deuteronomy 9.26 says, And I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy thy people, even thine inheritance, whom thou hast redeemed, Pada, thou hast purchased through thy greatness, whom thou hast brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In Deuteronomy 13.5, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you, Pada, redeemed you from the house of slavery. Again and again, redemption is grounded back to what happened at the Exodus event. Deuteronomy 15.15, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed Pada, redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Notice the order there. First of all, there's a reminder that you were a slave in Egypt. Secondly, God purchased you. Third, that means that God has the right to command you, and there is a proper way of life now that you have been purchased with your, and, and, and received freedom from slavery. And this is the same thing that the Apostle Paul is going to say, the same line of logic of Romans chapter 6. We have been bought with a price, therefore we are not our own, we are God's. We are dead to sin now, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are free to Free to righteousness. We are, in fact, slaves of righteousness, Paul says in Romans chapter 6. It's the same order that because we've been purchased, God has a right to command and order our lives and direct our lives. Deuteronomy 21.8. Forgive thy people, Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of thy people, Israel, and the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven him. Notice that um, that was Deuteronomy 21.8. Uh, in that passage, there's a relationship of forgiveness to redemption. The blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. Then in Deuteronomy 24:18, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed, that's Pada, redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. So God purchased Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now, how did he do that? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 and look briefly at the mechanics of redemption. This is all under point two. The Old Testament picture of redemption is based on the Exodus event. We're not going to look at the whole chapter, but just a few, pick out a few verses. This is at the time of the tenth plague, which is the plague where the... uh, Firstborn would die unless the certain procedures were followed. This is covered, that's covered in chapter 11. Then in verse 12, God gives the redemption solution to Israel. Now, He's warned them that he, as in order to get the Egyptians to release the Jews from slavery, He's going to take the life of every firstborn in Egypt. Now, there's going to be a solution. How are they going to avoid this calamity of losing the firstborn in every house? So he gives instructions, and they're recorded recorded beginning in verse 3 of chapter 12. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, 
They are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. So it started off with an unblemished lamb, verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So he starts off with an unblemished lamb. This is a picture, of of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they take a lamb, they examine it to make sure that it is indeed unblemished, that it's not sick, that there's not some problem with it. That relates to the fact that we uh, were witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ's life prior to the cross, that he was uh, sinless. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole congregation, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So there would be the sacrifice of the, of the lamb. This is the purchase price. And then, verse 7, the specific instructions, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat of it. So they were to take the blood and apply it specifically to their to each individual house. Notice again, the emphasis is on the family, not just individuals. And they would go to the door, and they would smear blood at the top and on each side. And the basic shape that comes across here is that of a cross. Incidentally, when they would take the lamb, and they would take the carcass of the lamb, they would roast it on a spit that involved a vertical and horizontal piece, so it too was on, on, a, on, a, on, a, um, on a cross. So this all, of course, foreshadows the death on the cross of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So this is the redemption price that's paid. And when the angel of death came along, he would pass over the house and see the blood on the doorpost and Passover and not bring death to that house, death of the firstborn. So they were delivered from death by the blood of the unblemished lamb. Now let's turn down to verse 29. Verse 29, Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. No home except those Jews who had applied the blood to their doorpost. And the result of this is then summarized down in verse 51 at the end of the chapter. And it came about on that same day that the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So this is the deliverance of Egypt. I mean, of the Jews from Egypt when God brought them forth. So that is how redemption was accomplished in the Old Testament. Here's the purchase of the price. Now, there are five characteristics, point number three now, five characteristics of the Redeemer that are applied to Jesus Christ. As we'll see in in, in Ruth, Boaz is the Goel, and there are five characteristics of the Goel Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, that apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is that the Redeemer is a relative. 
The Redeemer must be a relative. The Goel, the kinsman Redeemer, must be related genetically, be a family member. Uh, Leviticus 25:48. The Redeemer must be a relative. So it's not necessarily a brother. It can be an extended family member, a distant cousin, but it has to be a relative from the same clan. Leviticus 25:48 and following. Secondly, the Redeemer must be willing to redeem. The Redeemer must be willing to redeem. It's a voluntary action. It's not. It's an obligation, but it is not uh, mandatory. Uh, the Redeemer must be willing to redeem. In fact, as we'll see in our study of the Goel Redeemer, that when the, when the Goel recognizes or is, is willing to accept the practice, it's one thing, but if the kinsman Redeemer turns it down, then there's a ceremony involved. And the ceremony is that the uh, person who is to be redeemed takes the shoe off of the person's foot and then spits in their face. And they would do that in the public square so everybody got to watch. But that is because it was a, a shame because the Redeemer was failing to fulfill their responsibilities to the family. So it was seen as a matter of shame in, in, the, uh, in the culture. So the second point... Third, the third point of the doctrine, five characteristics of the Redeemer apply to Jesus Christ. First characteristics, the Redeemer is a relative. Second characteristic, the Redeemer must be willing to redeem. Third characteristic, the Redeemer must be able to redeem. The Redeemer must be able to redeem. He must have the financial resources to pay the redemption price. So if he doesn't, he's incapable of doing that. But 